We are looking through this month at our Reformation uh, series, um, this morning, Only Grace. Uh, thanks, Justin. Um, we're looking at this, through this month, at the story of the Reformation. 500 years ago, this German monk, uh, Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King, who was a great man, but much later, or Lex Luther, who was a baddie in Superman, uh, but Martin Luther, the German monk. And we're looking at how his personal story of being born again through this revelation from the scriptures became also the story for uh, a new, emerging, vibrant, vital kind of church. And how uh, the church was awakened again to her gospel and her mission in that time. And we're preaching through the, the five onlys uh, that Martin Luther um, made as a foundation for uh, his new kind of church. Only scripture, only faith, only grace, only Christ. And only the glory of God. And our prayer, and I think we're finding it answered so far through this series, is that the story and the scriptures uh, that feed into that story that released Luther's heart speak afresh to us in our generation. So let's read Ephesians chapter 2, just the first 10 verses. If you were here at the start, Joe read them out actually at the beginning of our sung worship time. Make them up on the screen. It does if you haven't got a, a Bible with you. I'm reading from the New International Version. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those of us who were disobedient. All of us also lived among them at that time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great mercy, um, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We love the scriptures. We, we love that it, it's only through the word of God that we find our hearts changed and brought alive uh, with this revelation of Jesus Christ. We're thanking you already that you're speaking to us this morning. We thank you for that reading earlier from uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It says that the Holy Spirit makes known to us these amazing revelations, revelations and truths about Jesus and his, 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 his incredible plans for the world and for our lives. We welcome you right now, Holy Spirit. We welcome your ministry in our lives as we uh, bring our lives under the, the, the word of God here. We say, come and speak, come and move, come and have your way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So we're just going to unpack these uh, verses for a few moments. I've got one hit this morning at, at trying to do justice to the grace of God. Inevitably, with one shot at preaching on the grace of God, there'll be amazing, marvellous truths that we don't get near. There'll be, uh, there'll be ideas that we don't get to touch. Um, but I trust that we'll be able to do it justice this morning in a few minutes. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That, that, uh, that sentence there, in fact, the whole of the first 10 verses is a single sentence in the Greek. You get this idea, Paul was just pouring out with joy um, about the grace of God, the saving grace of God. But that sentence there that we've just read is the, the stunning conclusion 
to the previous verses and the predicament that we find ourselves in as sinful men and women, those who have been outside of the work of Christ. There may be some here this morning who have not yet come into Christ. Then these first few verses are describing your predicament and the predicament that many of us were in, our awful condition that is set out in the first four verses. Paul says we were dead in our sins. We were helpless. We were hopeless. We were incapable. Um, We had no responsiveness towards God, no desire to be responsive to him. Um, We're not alive to him. We're not alive to his goodness. We're not alive to his purposes. Indeed, Paul says, not only are we not alive to God, but we're very much alive to another master. We're following the ways of the ruler of the world. We're underneath the rulership, the authority of another kingdom. He uses that strange phrase, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It sounds a bit strange there, but it's just a recognition that that Satan has a delegated authority over people on planet Earth. Uh, And so it says, until we come to Christ, we're under his authority. Uh, under the, so we can say we're under the authority of the spirit of disobedience, uh, that, that culture and climate that exists in the world because of the authority that Satan has. And so because of that, we, uh, we're not living for ourselves even. Uh, we're living under the spirit of disobedience. So we gratify the desires of our, the cravings of our sin nature. Ever had a craving? Oh, hello. Okay, oh, one or two that are honest. That's good. Um, one or two are thinking about lunch already. The cravings of our sin nature are stronger than any craving you could have for sugar or food or any other pleasure in life. Not only do we have these cravings for sinful desire, but we follow every sin desire through. Every thought produces, that produces sin leads us to sin, and every sin we give ourselves to produces a desire for more sin. And we can't say no to it, and even if we wanted to, we don't have the authority to break free, even if we had such an inclination. All this means we are well and truly under the wrath, the, the righteous anger of a holy God. You're very quiet right now, and rightly you should be, because this is a terrible, terrible predicament. Our very nature, our very natural state, Paul says in this passage, is in the line of Adam. Adam was the first to be put out of the presence of God because of his sinful rebellion when God put him out of the Garden of Eden right in the beginning. And so Adam, our kind of representative head, we we can now be said to be in Adam. We're children of wrath. We're under the mastery of Satan. We're sons and daughters of disobedience. We need to be born again. We need to come into a new family. We need to come to a father uh, through the son, Jesus Christ. I wonder perhaps as we read these verses this morning, for some of you, maybe you've heard them for the first time. For many of us, they'd be really familiar verses. Um, I wonder if we've become over-familiar with these verses, when we understand the difficulty that we find ourselves in. I wonder if you are reading them, if you've heard them for the first time this morning, and and you hear layer after layer of our predicament outside of Christ. I I wonder if if you would imagine what line would come next. Probably having read all of that, that that you would write the next line naturally, logically, thinking, and so such a people got what they deserved. That, that would seem to be the natural conclusion to those first four verses here in, in Ephesians 2. The least likely response, I think, is the one that we find there. This magnificent, bright, shining doctrine, uh, this truth about the grace of God alone. Wow, I, th- I think it deserves an amen, actually. Hello, are you with me? I know it's the first week of half term, but uh, let, let's get with the passage here. The, the, there are four lines of stunning truth here. We've heard enough about our condition and the problems that we're in. We now hear a response from Paul about the character of God. And he says, because of his great love for us, 
God who is rich in mercy. He's made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our sins, it's by grace that we've been saved. Um, I love the old versions uh, of the Bible uh, that say, but God who is rich in mercy. Um, I think the English Standard Version uh, commentary notes say, but God, the greatest two-word phrase in the history of speech. But God, it's this turning point. We're in such a dire predicament, but God has broken in. It's the hinge point in the passage. Uh, And for all of us who are dead, who are hopeless, who are helpless, who are mastered by sin, who were enemies of God, but God who is rich in mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous old revivalist preacher who was at Westminster Chapel for many years, he, he spent years working through uh, these verses in Ephesians, um, and he says of, of this phrase, but God, these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? The whole of the gospel is in this idea, but God has broken in to our existence and broken us out of the predicament that we found ourselves in. But God, in the richness of his mercy and grace, do you know what? There's even more here in these verses than just the idea that we've been rescued from our sins, from our slavery to sin, from our rebellion uh, against God. We're not just rescued. We're not just pulled out of the sea and left on the lifeboat panting for breath. We've not just been given a ticket to heaven and told, yeah, just hang on now and wait until Jesus returns. Actually, that would be amazing, but we've not just been forgiven. We've not just been rescued from God's wrath. We've not just been saved from the judgment to come, but we know now because of this grace of God that we are secure, that we're free forever, that we're able already to begin to hope in the life to come without fear. There is grace applied to us that is over our past, the things we've done right into our present now and into our future as well. And so verse 6 teaches us that already we've been raised with Christ, not just rescued for something in the future when Jesus returns, but already in this eternal life, raised with Christ. Grace teaches us we've been raised for a purpose. We've been saved into something. Through his grace, we can say that our identity now is as those who are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. Have you got this, friends? It's really important. We're not just going to sneak into heaven by the back door one day when we die, but we've got a radical new identity now as saints. We've got uh, this, this new kind of eternal life has already started. It's already welling up in us because of this rich grace from God. Those who are declared to belong to Jesus Christ, those who've been made holy and right through Jesus Christ, are already welcomed and accepted and already fit for his purposes here and now. That's why Paul goes on to verse 10, and we can agree with it, that we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Um, We know our good works are not enough. Just follow the, the logic of the gospel. We know our good works don't earn us any merits with God. They don't get us saved. We, we know we've got no entry other than through the grace of God. That is a gift from God himself. But having come into God's acceptance and pleasure through his grace, he gives us good works to do. Isn't that wonderful? What a privilege. You know you've got good works that you're called to do and to live in and to walk in here in Crawley and in the places where you live and serve. Good works that are not done now and performed now in order to get right with God, but because we've been made right with God. It's no surprise then. Grace doesn't just open the prison door and liberate us, but it leads us into a whole new life for God. Hallelujah. Uh, and so we find back to, uh, to verse 7. Just come with me. Um, this, uh, we've been raised with Christ 
seated with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in this kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We can have some remarkable expectations now as those who are in Jesus Christ. Yeah, both today, uh, in the future, in the life to come, we've been saved by grace and we now get to see these incomparable. I never know where you put your emphasis there. Is it incomparable or incomparable? 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 Right, I'm going against the time. I'm going incomparable. Um, Just, I like to be awkward. Uh, And it will grate with you and you'll listen a bit more. Uh, The incomparable riches of his grace. True riches. Real worth. Authentic treasure. It's the kind of treasure Jesus spoke about in his parable where he said, once you see it, once you've discovered it, it's worth selling everything else you have in order to possess this one treasure, this true treasure. Paul uses the word incomparable, incomparable. Um, in, earlier on in the same letter, uh, Ephesians 1, 19, he uses it there to describe the incomparable power, God's power, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and lifted him high above every other power, ruler and authority. Now he's using the same word, not just to speak about Christ being raised, but to speak about the, rich, the incomparable riches of grace that are ours now in the same person, Jesus Christ, incomparable, exceeding, abounding, overflowing riches. Um, Everything now you get to compare on a website somewhere, whether you're buying car insurance, um, whether you're staying in a hotel and you're comparing things on TripAdvisor, if if you're buying on Amazon, you buy a book and it says if you like that book, then here are some alternatives you might like as well. Or even if you're buying lemons in Tesco's and they haven't got them, they'll do a comparison from your shopping and they'll send you lemon bleach or lemon cheesecake instead. Everything, Everything gets compared these days. Paul says of the riches of this grace, that is ours in Jesus Christ. There's no comparison. There's no measure you can compare it to. There is no similar alternative that you can find anywhere else in heaven or on earth that will be uh, a worthwhile substitute. Uh, Nothing to compare to the authentic, original richness of pure grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Um, Again, in the old versions of the Bible, it it talks about immeasurable uh, riches of grace. Uh, Around our house, there are loads of tape measures. Cassie's sewing. Uh, in fact, there are loads of tape measures until you need one, and then you can never find one. How does that work? Um, listen, these riches of grace are immeasurable. You don't have a tape measure long enough. There isn't a scale um, invented that is high enough. I was looking at this week at some of the, the biggest measures that science can make now, and I, I discovered that... Um, Forgive me if you're science geeks, I'm not, I was kicked out of physics in my second year of secondary school um, with a grade F saying Stephen has failed to grasp the fundamentals of the subject, um, <laughs> usually because I spent most of the lessons taking the keys off the back trouser clip of my physics teacher and locking him in his cupboard when he went in there. Um, don't, don't do that, guys. It's very bad behavior. Um, but scientists tell me now on Google uh, that from the Earth to the edge of the known universe, and that's just the known universe right now, is 46 billion light years away. A light year um, is uh, the, the, the distance that light travels in one year. Apparently, it's 6 million million miles that light travels in one year. So the measure from the Earth, are you still with me? To the, uh, you didn't know you get some physics this morning, did you? Um, astrophysics, hey, from me. That's not bad, is it? Steve, they don't call me Steve Astrophysics Alliston for nothing. <laughs> In fact, I don't think they've ever called me that. <laughs> um, so, 
46 billion times 6 million million. I don't know how many zeros are on that. I don't know how many to the power ofs go on the end of that. But even that distance can be measured. Paul says, these riches of grace are even off that scale. They are so immeasurable. Hallelujah. And they've been expressed to us. How does such a vast sum that can't be measured get expressed to us? Well, it gets expressed through the kindness in Jesus Christ. So we're just kind of coming full circle. We're walking around these these beautiful, shining um, truths of, of grace, this immeasurable grace expressed towards us through the kindness of God, sending his perfect son. We've sung it this morning, for God so loved that he gave his son to lay down his life for the sake of us. Through the kindness of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for your immeasurable grace. Thank you for your incomparable riches that are given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray the the riches, the beauty of this doctrine of grace would would increasingly be on on display in our transformed and transforming lives so that everyone might see your worth and your beauty. This this teaching of grace um, was was startling 500 years ago with, with Luther Um, It was liberating. It was necessary. It's just as liberating and necessary today as when the lights first came on for Martin Luther. Here in the UK today, we uh, certainly in in our setting, we don't live under um, the kind of heavy, superstitious Catholic ideology that Martin Luther lived under. We know we're under. We're living in a culture in a place like Crawley, where all kinds of ideas have taken root and grow and flourish. So our Reformation is not to battle against one big lie of tradition that Luther had and power, but we battle against many ideas and much confusion. But the root idea that was true for Luther is true for us today. And, and here it is, and note this well, if, if, we, if we try our best, if I'm essentially a good person, um, if I try hard, if I, if I work hard at doing the right things, or at least the things that I think are right in, in my eyes, then, then surely God will one day bless me. That's the kind of mantra that most people live by. And friends, let me tell you, these are, those ideas are dangerous distortions. They're as dangerous today as they were in Luther's day. They're dangerous because they sound so reasonable and they're distortions because the word of God tells us that however hard our efforts, however much we try to please God and to be good, it's only by grace that we've been saved uh, and, and not by works so that we can't boast. They're distortions because we know we cannot get right with God in our own strength and so these, these good sounding ideas hold us in a place of deception. So many of us that are followers of Jesus already here, often we start out in grace, but so quickly we end up with, in that really uncomfortable position of one foot in either camp. That's good. Who was at that Freddie Mercury tribute act last night? I'm just doing my little Freddie there. Someone told me they were there last night at the Hawth. Okay, we end up in that really difficult position of one foot in, in the grace of God and one foot uh, back under the, the law. We've never understood fully that if we've died with Christ, this is what our baptisms will show us next week, all out of Romans 6, if we've died with Christ, if we've gone down into his death in the water, if we've come up into new life, then our old relationship with sin and with the law has changed forever. If we've died with Christ to those things, then how can we live in them any longer? That's what Romans 5 to 7 is all about. So Romans 8, Paul carries on with this amazing conclusion that in spite of the power of the sin and of of law, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a spirit of life in Christ Jesus that we now live and walk in. 
and, and so we can nod our heads and say amen this morning, but so much of our Christian living is characterized by us keeping going in our own strength, trying harder, analyzing our performance, some navel-gazing introspection about how well I may be doing, and so we come back under the law, and we, we come back under comparisons, we come back under the things that can be measured, uh, uh, the measures of man, the lesser measures, rather than uh, and move away from this immeasurable, incomparable richness of, of grace. Imagine if uh, one of the people who's getting baptised next week, who've been, you know, I, wow, I've been saved by grace, it's all of God, I was dead, he's made me alive, I've done nothing, he's done everything. But the, friends, this is what happens pretty soon afterwards, someone comes alongside and says, hey, it's great that you've been baptised this morning. But now that you've been saved, if you can just add some of these rules to your Christian living, you'll do okay. And so we tell them things that in themselves are good. You know, if you can get up ultra early, read your Bible for half an hour, if you can do an hour, actually, that would be even more uh, impressive. And uh, could you get up at 5.30 and pray for an hour? Uh, um, and by the way, why don't you stop talking that way and stop doing this and stop going there and, and stop thinking about that? Again, these things in and of themselves can form a part of, uh, an important part of our discipleship. But, but the, the, the moment that they begin to define whether we feel God accepts us or not, then we've slipped into this one foot in either camp, dangerous distortion. And we begin then, of course, comparing ourselves to other people based on these externals, um, and therefore, we become convinced either that I'm an absolute failure because I can't read my Bible for as long every morning as Justin does and therefore I, I fall into despair or maybe I look at someone else. I'm not going to pick anyone now, but I think, hey, I'm doing better than them. And, and so I get filled with, with, with pride. Whether it's despair or pride that we get locked into through comparison, they're both deceptions that are rooted in a lack of understanding of the grace of God. Hebrews 4.16 teaches us that because of Jesus, Jesus alone, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. How do we approach the throne of grace with confidence? Confidence in what? In my performance? In my ability to please God? Of course not. The clue's in the name. It's written over the throne. It's a throne of grace. Um, we approach the throne of grace with confidence, not in myself, but in Jesus Christ and his work of grace. That's where our confidence is placed. That's why later on uh, in the letter to the Hebrews, they can say, let's hold unswervingly to this hope that we profess and not pull hold of anything else. No performance, no grading, no credit history. Nothing you or I have done but grace alone in Jesus Christ. Beloved, it's really important that we catch this this morning. So often our distortion of grace keeps us in this place of, of trying to measure up and so we end up shrinking back and falling away. Because we know we've fallen short by any of our earthly measures. Because we're trying to measure to the immeasurable and we've taken that responsibility on ourselves all over again when Jesus has already dealt with it. We, uh, we, we spent a lot of time uh, in, in Brazil a couple of weeks ago talking with, with uh, church leaders about the grace of God. Whether we were teaching in churches or around tables in restaurants and coffee shops. And uh, we looked at one point in Genesis 27, this beautiful old story. Uh, of uh, Isaac, um, the, the father, uh, Jacob and Esau, the twin sons. And uh, while Rebekah, the mother, was pregnant with, with, uh, with Esau and, uh, and Jacob, she received a prophetic promise uh, that the older would serve the younger, a total turning around of the normal order of things, uh, whereby all, all the inheritance goes to the, rightly to the older brother. 
And uh, so Rebecca held on to this promise. Even, it says even as the babies came out of the womb, Jacob the younger was grasping the heel uh, of the older brother. He wanted to be first. And they lived through, as you read the story, this, this competitiveness through their lives. And we find in Genesis 27, Isaac now is old and blind. He's dying. Actually, he thinks he's dying. Uh, but you read the story. He doesn't die till a long time later. He obviously has years of, of, of Googling his own symptoms and feeling pretty bad about them. Uh, but here he is. He thinks he's going. And he says to, to Esau, the old older son, go kill for me my favorite game uh, and, uh, and bring it back, cook me a meal, and I'm going to bless you. Uh, that, that's a really significant moment because in that blessing, he's conferring the inheritance. It's like the reading of the will. Uh, this is where Esau is going to get everything and get the call and the plan of God to, to lead God's people through into the next generation. Rebecca, the mother, hears this. She's outside. Uh, and, and when Esau goes, she grabs her younger son. She says, quick, go kill me a couple of goats and, and uh, I'll make them into your father's favorite meal. You take them in and you get the blessing. What, what a conniving woman. Um, there's another sermon on that another time. God seems to bless it. Uh, we don't have time to go into that this morning. Um, Jacob says, I, I, I can't do that. What if dad finds out? She says these, these terrible words, if there's a curse, let it be on me. She's so desperate to push her son forward into an inheritance he doesn't deserve. Jacob's still a bit nervous, and he says, but, but, but my, my brother, he's really hairy. He's got a big red beard and hairy skin, and that's what it says in the Bible. I'm a really smooth man. Uh, and uh, so she says, don't worry, the goats, those goats you've just killed, I'll put the skin on your arms, on the back of your neck, so when your father pulls you in close, he'll feel. Go get your brother's clothes, put them on. And so Jacob dresses accordingly, takes the food in, goes into his father, surely at every moment expecting he's going to be found out, gets past the guys on the door, gets in and says, hey, Dad, I thought, hey, Dad, I bought you all food. I'm Esau. And uh, Dad says, hey, it sounds like, sounds like Esau. Uh, it sounds like Jacob, but he says he's Esau. And he says, come close, my son. And Jacob comes close. Dad's still not sure. As you read the story, you realize there's, there's real doubt in his mind. It's only when he pulls him close and he feels his skin. In fact, it's the smell that does it. He, he sniffs the clothes of his eldest son. He says, yeah, that's my son. He says it's the fragrance of a freshly ploughed field. I, th I think in Hebrew culture that's a compliment. Um, <laughs> top tip teenagers, when you start dating, fellas, if you take a girl out on a date and you say, hey, you smell nice, you smell like a freshly ploughed field, <laughs> not going to go down well unless she's from a Hebrew background. Maybe that works. Let, let me know. Uh, if you come back with a smarting cheek, you'll know it doesn't work. Yeah, free dating advice and astrophysics. It's all good here. Um, and so he goes in, he comes close and... and, and uh, Isaac smells his firstborn son, and so he begins to bless, uh, by deceit, his secondborn son. And so often we come before God, we come into his presence, we begin to approach the throne of grace. We've got all our coverings on us. I've got my good works. I've got the fact that I've been to church every Sunday for the last 52 weeks, and I haven't missed a prayer meeting, and I've got my Bible reading plan. I've got my prayer life. I've got every effort. I've got the fact that I haven't sworn. I've given up smoking. I don't sleep around anymore. I've got all my good works that clothe me. I'm, I'm hoping I might just get near to, to God, but as I get near, I realize he isn't like the old blind father in that Genesis 27 story that he sees right into my heart. Every covering I've put on myself to be able to come near to God just falls away. And I'm naked before him. And surely now I'm going to be thrown out of his presence. And then the father, who's not blind or old, but sees everything, says, hey, come close. You're, you're in my son. You're in the perfect elder brother. I see his clothes on you. 
Oh, Jesus, the perfect elder brother, come near. And he pulls us in close. Yeah, I smell the fragrance of Jesus Christ. I see his perfection on you. And so he begins to bless us with the inheritance that we don't deserve. All the riches of Christ become ours, not through deception, not through conniving, but because we're completely, eternally, now and forever, clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. There's, there's no need for us to shrink back from, from God. We've been saved by his grace. We're in Christ. We're in the perfect son now. We can move forward in his grace. We can approach God with confidence in this covering that's been so freely given to us. Friends, can I encourage you, if like me, you need to repent of some of this mashed up, mixed up, self-dependent theology, which often sounds good and pious, but leaves us in despair of ever really coming close to a loving God. If you need, like me, to repent of some of that, may we do so this morning. We'll just move to a conclusion in a moment, but let me say we're not alone in this. Luther, as a monk, before he was born again, he had all the same ideas. He says in his journals, It's true, I was a good monk. I kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this. If it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. He wanted to be certain that God loved him, that he was accepted. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And the, the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more daily I found it more uncertain, weaker and more troubled. That's what the law and comparison does. Luther nearly killed himself through his extreme efforts. His, his priest confessor said, I'm not going to hear your confession anymore because Luther used to keep him up all day and all night going through a very, very long list. You're supposed to get in, a couple of quick confessions, bish, bash, bosh, a couple of Hail Marys, out you go, next please. Luther kept him up all day and all night and nearly killed the confessor as well as himself. Um, and then one day when he was in the tower reading Romans 1.17, the blazing light of the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ came upon him and everything changed and Luther read, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And he said, at this I felt myself straight away born again and born afresh and to have entered through the open gates into paradise itself. There's a man that realises suddenly, I can come before the throne of grace, not because of anything I've done, but because Jesus leads me there. All my attempts at self-righteousness are over. All the efforts that he'd been through day after day, night after night, that actually led to him hating a God who could set the bar so high, now he can come running to him and love him and be loved by him. I wonder, friends, whether some of us are killing ourselves in the same way. Whether like Luther, we're pushing so hard to break into grace but are unable to. Whether like him, we're mixing grace with a strong measure of legalism just to be sure. Let me tell you, it kills us. It kills our love for God. It kills our love for one another. It kills our love for the lost. And there are three simple things we're saying that we exist here in Crawley to be able to do. To love Jesus, to love one another, and to love those that don't yet know him. Legalism will kill all of that. It never bears any fruit in our lives. In fact, it does bear fruit in our lives. It bears fruit that leads to death, uh, decay. It's a wasting disease. It produces disappointment, bitterness, despair, anger. It's so tiring trying to live that way. Some of us are so weary trying to be good. We've been robbed of joy and life and intimacy with God. We resent one another. We've, we, the, even the good works that God has called us to serve him in just become like a heavy 
burden. We need to wake up and repent of this. Jesus invites the weary to come to him. He invites the heavy laden to come and know him lifting this yoke off and putting a new uh, level upon them to discover this new rhythm of grace as we walk with him. I think uh, on that video, some of you may have seen, I shared at the start of the week on the church Facebook page, my, my own story, I'm nothing like Martin Luther, uh, not German or a monk for a start, um, born into a Christian family, mum and dad, both church leaders, amazing privileged upbringing uh, in that regard. Um, I don't remember a time when I didn't know Jesus, born again at a very young age, uh, and yet in my later teenage years, so mixed up uh, in knowing that I was saved, but trying to keep God happy through my behaviour. I was age 21, I can't, I can't remember whether we were just married or just before we got married, but I've been sent on a, um, a, a sort of early New Frontiers leadership training course, and one of the old fathers of uh, New Frontiers, Arnold Bell, who's gone to be with the Lord now, was, uh, was preaching from Ephesians and teaching all day on the, on the grace of God, and oh wow, as, as he invited people to stand and worship afterwards, I, I went down to the floor on my knees and I wept like a baby, and I, I felt that I'd been born again, again, as these truths about grace began to transform my weary heart in that moment and began to know that I was accepted by God and began to know that he called me for a purpose that I'd never yet fully understood. This is the incredible transformation that can be true for us. Luther said, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe this and everything is done. Believe this doctrine of grace and everything is done. It's true for us today. Whether you wear a medieval hair shirt and you whip yourself over your sin like Luther did, or whether you've got more alarms and apps than you know how to use to try and keep your Bible reading plan on track, but you despair of ever really drawing near to God in your heart through it all, this is true for us. Believe in grace and everything is done. That's what begins to dig out this root that we've said is deep in our psyche, this lie that God only loves us and accepts us when we make ourselves more attractive and presentable to him. That old root needs digging out by the grace of God. The gospel of grace says God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. The gospel of grace says God has called us into his kingdom, not the righteous, but sinners. The gospel of grace says, remarkably, these very same sinners are now saints. The gospel of grace says we've been made right with God, raised up with Christ, with holy work to do. And on what basis does that happen? Only on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we believe this, everything is done. For Luther, for the new church, it was all in and through grace found in Jesus. For Luther, no more Hail Marys full of grace. No more intermediaries, intermediaries between God and man. There is one intermediary, and that is Jesus Christ and his finished work. No other way, no other help needed, no other religion, no other effort at trying to be good. Grace alone expressed in his kindness to us through Jesus Christ. That's what enables us to accept, to approach the Heavenly Father with joy. Friends, can we stand please? I'm going to pray, and we're going to take some time to uh, respond to the Holy Spirit to break bread together.